You can go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians. As you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6, let me just remind you we're in a series, a mini-series in the book of Ephesians called Walking in Relationships. And we get to the section this morning that deals specifically with our working relationships. And I want to read it for us, and then I want to launch into a bit of an extended introduction to really help set this stage for what we're going to dive into. So at verse 5, the apostle writes, Paul writes these words. He says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. In our culture and society, what you do for work bears an incredible amount of weight. Where we determine, oftentimes, our identity, it's where we uh, oftentimes find our security, It oftentimes is where we find our subculture, our group of friends. We place a lot of stock in what we do for a living or how we spend the majority of our time in a a vocation, in that sense, whether that be at home or in the workplace. It's oftentimes how we measure or determine in our lives if we are successful, especially in the world's eyes. And for many, our career really is our life. It is how we define ourselves. It is how we ultimately identify ourselves. It is, in one sense, the principal source of life's meaning for us. There is much pressure that we feel in in our society to be shaped by what we do. And yet, what we see in scriptures is that work is not to be our fundamental or primary identity. Our identity in Christ is what matters most, and our identity in Christ is what ultimately shapes the way in which we work. The world thinks about work primarily through the lens of self. Oftentimes, the world, when they approach work, they begin to think of how they can use work to better themselves, how they can better their own lives, how they can build their own reputation, ultimately how they can build their own kingdom and make a name for themselves or make themselves great. But according to the scriptures, work is about using your gifts to serve others, to better the society that God has placed you in, and ultimately to glorify God himself. It's incredibly important this morning that we understand that we have to know how to apply as Christians our faith in our workplace. And oftentimes my fear is that many of us have compartmentalized our life so that our faith kind of works into these specific or particular areas of my life, but over here, potentially the workplace, it's really not about my faith nearly as much. The Word of God contradicts that. And if you just think about your life for a minute, half of your waking hours are devoted to work. You think about that? A massive amount of your waking hours is devoted to work. And that simply means this, that the workplace is the primary place where many will live out their faith. Your vocation, again, whether that's in an office building or whatever that may look like for you, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom and that is your primary work that you do, your vocation is the main way, listen, that you will love others and display God to them. 
You say, well, that's great, but our passage this morning is talking about bondservants, or as some translations say, slaves and masters. What exactly does this text have to do with my work life? Well, it's important to understand the context of this passage. Many want to use this passage and passages like this to accuse Christianity of endorsing slavery and therefore being regressive. But you see, the Bible never condones slavery in the sense of involuntary servitude or capturing someone to work against their will. It never condones that kind of thinking and behavior. It actually prohibits that very directly, in fact, both in the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 21, verse 16, Moses wrote these words. He said, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him, listen to this, shall be put to death. In the New Testament, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, that the the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what Paul does is he takes enslaving or kidnapping, and the idea is forcing them into slavery, and he tells us that this is lumped into a whole bunch of other wicked and grievous sins that are completely unacceptable and antithetical to biblical teaching. Although the church and Christians at times have been complicit and even advocated for slavery, that is only because they weren't being true to who they were called to be in the Lord. It was only because they weren't being true to what the Scriptures taught. And when they have been true to the Scriptures, throughout history, they have opposed slavery and opposed segregation. And you can think of examples in history such as William Wilberforce and John Newton himself, who was once a slave trader. It should be very clear that the Bible does not endorse slavery, but we need to recognize that a bondservant in this passage is something totally different than what we think of when we imagine slavery. There's a huge cultural gap here when we read this passage because when we hear slavery, we instantly begin to think of the slavery that was present in the United States in particular. But a bondservant was completely different. It's more like an indentured servant. It wasn't based, in other words, listen, on race. It, was volu- it wasn't, sorry, involuntary. But a bondservant is completely different than that. It wasn't a permanent fixture in the society. It wasn't based on race. It was voluntary. And it was actually a way of getting out of debt in the ancient world. It was temporary, not permanent. In fact, most bondservants were in that condition for around 7 to 10 years. Often at the age of 30, they would be released. It was common a common employment function in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, approximately one-third of the Greco-Roman population would be considered bondservants. And by the way, they weren't relegated to menial jobs, as you might imagine when you think of slavery as well. Many of them were doctors or accountants or teachers. They actually made money, sometimes even from their masters. And when you think about this concept of bondservant, it's important to understand that Jesus even referenced this concept in a lot of the parables that he taught. If you remember the parable of the talents that Jesus told, it tells us that he gives money to three different bondservants. And he doesn't just give them a little bit of money, he actually gives them each five talents. Now, one talent was the equivalent of 20 years' wages in the ancient world. 
Five talents is like millions of dollars that he hands over to these bond servants. Clearly, in other words, a bond servant wasn't relegated to the lower echelons of society in terms of what they did and the kind of influence that they had. They had many important jobs, and the social category was actually higher than that of a day laborer back then. They were paid, they owned possessions, and I just want you to see that what we're talking about here is very different than what oftentimes we imagine slavery to be. So all of this means that the instruction here is more akin to our modern employment setting than what we think of in slavery. And the most direct application for us is an employee and a boss. Paul really paints for us three portraits. He shows us a good employee, a good boss, and a good God. But before we get into those portraits, we need to understand work, firstly, as a good gift. As a good gift. And I want to anchor our thinking about this, more broadly speaking, theologically. And I think this is really important in the grand scheme of the book of Ephesians. We have talked over and over throughout the book of Ephesians that one of the primary themes, maybe if not the most important theme in the book of the Ephesians, is the idea of cosmic reconciliation. Ephesians 1.10, that he's going to unite all things in heaven and earth through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, that the day is coming when God is going to reconcile everything that has been broken and cursed by sin back to himself. He's going to make everything right again. We've prayed about that this morning, we've sung about it in many of our songs, and we long for the day where that will occur, amen? And throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is laying out theologically how God is beginning to already do that. There's an already not yet aspect to God's reconciling power through the gospel. And he begins by reminding us that individually we're reconciled to God in an initial sense. Finally, one day we will be fully. But initially, right now, we can be reconciled to God individually by faith and repentance. He tells us that God is reconciling people groups in the church, Jews and Gentiles, formerly irreconcilable. He's made them one new man. In Ephesians chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's telling us that. And he's showing us, listen, that we are already participating in a reconciled life. And as we've walked into Ephesians 4 in particular, he's talked about how we now walk, how we live, how this fleshes out in the Christian life. And it's fascinating to me that what he begins to do in Ephesians chapter 5 is he talks about three specific kinds of relationships that all deal with God's reconciling power. And I just want to lay this out at the beginning because this is going to play into where we're going as God's good gift to us work. He focused first, as we saw a few weeks ago, on marriage the marriage relationship, and then he focused on the relationship with children, and now he's focusing on our relationship in terms of work. Here's why this is important. Because before the fall, God gave three primary instructions to man, didn't he? He said, leave and cleave and become one flesh. Primary responsibility, number one, in one sense, to display and to image uh, God to the world. The second relationship flows out of the be fruitful and multiply, doesn't it? And fill the earth. Parents and children. And it's fascinating to see that before the fall, listen, what God said to Adam, he put him in the garden and he said this. He said, work it and keep it. And it's very interesting to me that now Paul, as he talks about what it looks like to live the reconciled life, in one sense he's going all the way back to the beginning and saying, look, the very purpose for which man was created to image God and some of these primary relationships where we image God, this is the primary area that God is wanting to restore first. And this is going to be the way in which you highlight and display God to the world around you. 
And we're reminded in that, listen, that work has a purpose. God gave it before sin. That should matter deeply to some of you who think that work is really a product of the curse. Work actually matters to God because it was his idea. God created us to work and he gave dignity to the idea of work. But this is a radical thought in the Greco-Roman world. This idea that children, or excuse me, slaves obey your earthly masters, this concept in and of itself is completely radical. They saw work as something that the lowest in society did. Those of less worthy or worth, excuse me, and less value, those who labored so that the higher class in society could spend all of their time um, in this culture in particular, contemplating and theorizing and philosophizing. They, they placed a higher value on the intellectual side of things than on the more menial tasks that needed to take place for society to function and flourish. But the Bible gives a different picture of work. In Genesis 1 and 2, again, God places Adam in a garden, and he doesn't give him a lazy boy and an iPad. He gives him a job. Work and keep the garden Push it forward. Push the boundaries of the garden outward. Take the chaos of this world, in one sense, and order it and structure it. And in so doing, image me to the world. He gives Adam a job as a gardener and Eve as his helper, and together they work towards this objective. And here's what he's doing there. He's calling Adam, made in the image of God, remember, to take the raw materials of the earth and to cultivate it for the good of others, for the flourishing of culture and society, and ultimately for the glory of his name. He's bringing order to chaos in a way that benefits the society around him. And what God calls him to in the gardening is actually a prototype for all human work. It actually now serves as a metaphor for our work as human beings. We take the raw materials of this world still and we make order out of the chaos. And we do so for the good of others around us, for the good of culture and society as a whole, and for the glory of God. This is the primary purpose for which God gave work in the beginning. Work is not a result of sin and the curse. It's actually created good. That means, listen, that it actually has intrinsic value, not just instrumental value. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, most Christians believe that work is neutral, but that God can value your work if you use it for spiritual purposes. And so we have this idea in my mind that my work really doesn't matter. It's just simply the arena that I now share and talk about Jesus. So we go to work and we stand around and we talk about Jesus instead of doing our jobs. And we think that that's the only way God can actually receive benefit from our job and from our work. Or we simply think that work is a means to an end and that we, we, we make as much money as we can and maybe give it away to missionaries and that's, that's the only way our work now has value. It's, it's because of what it can produce instead of seeing that the work we do has value intrinsically. It's built into the very concept of work. Oftentimes our thinking is so skewed in this way. Our value is in doing some spiritual things at work but not in the work itself. But that's not how God views work. God values work, all work, by the way, both inside the church and outside the church. 
there is a terrible assumption that the people who love God the most will go into vocational ministry. I hear this all the time, and people wrestle with this all the time in their spiritual lives. They begin to think that they're, they're not really doing anything of value, and I just want to serve the Lord. Maybe I need to quit my job and become a full-time missionary. There are so many people who wrongly assume or believe that the only valuable thing you can do or the most valuable thing you can do is to quit your job and simply go into vocational full-time ministry, and the Bible debunks that. So I just want to crush that idea in your mind. If you're in here this morning and that's what you believe, it is completely, completely false. God values all work. There is a place and a calling into the pastorate and to go into the work of a missionary, and that's good and that's important, but that doesn't devalue other work, nor is that other work any less important in God's eyes. I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say. Uh, Bond servants, uh, quit your job and become pastors because that's all God cares about. No, because what they're doing actually has intrinsic value. Why? Why? Think about this theologically. Because work itself reflects God himself. Let me say that again. Work itself reflects God himself. The Bible opens with a depiction of God working. You see that? Working and creating, making order out of chaos, structure out of what is unstructured. He is speaking creation into existence. He is cultivating it and producing it and caring for it. Jesus Christ said, my father is working until now and I am working. Right now, God is at work. You think about that? He is guiding. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. He is loving and judging and saving and on and on and on. And the first thing the Bible shows us about God is that he is creative, competent, efficient, caring. And he is a worker whose work provides for others, blesses others, meets the needs of others, and makes life possible for them. That's incredibly important to grasp as you think about your work. And that means that work is neither a punishment nor cursed drudgery, but an exalted godlike activity. God made man to work and to reflect the character of God in work. God, who is a worker, ordained work so that humans could worship him through their work. One author said it like this, As man works, he is to make the ways of the invisible God visible to any and all who behold what he does. This, of course, is made more difficult in a fallen world. We understand that sin has caused much chaos and work directly is affected as part of the curse. Work is now more laborious and painful, toiling, sweating, it's exhausting. But what God made good, sin made hard, not bad. I love what Jim Hamilton says. He says this, he says, who we are as the bearers of the image and likeness of the creator is inherent in what God has given us to do. The filling, subduing, and ruling are to be done for God's sake and in God's way to display God's own character. There is to be no disconnect between what a man or woman is and the way he or she does his or her work. How a man understands himself, his fundamental assumptions about the world, God, and his 
own sense of purpose will be made manifest in the way he does his work. I love that. And so here, what we can launch into now is, well, how exactly do we do our work in a way that will display God? And that's exactly what Paul wants to hit at. Slaves, he says, obey your earthly masters. First, let's look at the good employee. Obey your earthly masters, he says, with fear and trembling. I want to give you kind of four characteristics that describe, biblically speaking, a good employee. And I'm sure that's not, this is not exhaustive, but I think it's very clear in this text. The first one is this, that we, we work in our relationship with Christ with a new ethic. A new ethic. We have a new work ethic and an ethic that defines us as followers of Jesus Christ and oftentimes distinguishes us from the world around us. He says we're to obey our earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, it's important to understand what Paul is saying, and I think it's helpful to understand that we obsess so much in our culture over what we do for work. We're so, it's one of the first questions we, we get asked. It's one of the first questions we ask others. But in this passage, God is wanting us to focus even more so on how we work. And the idea here of fear and trembling really lends itself to the idea of respect, with respect, he's not telling us that we need to cower in front of our bosses. That's not the point of this text. We're, we're to f- be in fear and trembling before the Lord as well. And again, that's not the kind of fear that we often think of. It is respect and honor that we are trying to show to an individual. So this ethic is really defined by respectful behavior. And I think that that should be clear in how we operate in the workplace as an employee, in the way you interact, for example, with your boss and fellow employees. You need to be acting respectfully of them and who they are, how you speak to them, how you respond to them, not talking about your boss behind their back, not indulging in office gossip and slander, not doing personal things on work time. We could think of a long list of ways to be respectful towards our employers. And you might be thinking in here this morning, well, well, Ian, you don't know my boss. My boss is not respectable. And to that, I would simply say, just because your boss is a jerk doesn't mean you get to be one too. This is not the way this happens. In any of these relationships, in all of these relationships that we've looked at previously in Ephesians, notice that our behavior is not ultimately dependent on the other person's behavior. We are responsible for ourselves before the Lord. You should treat them with respect and dignity, not because they deserve it, but because God calls you to it. We have a new ethic, and this is how we can display God. Notice this next, we have a new integrity. He says next, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. This really is getting to the area of character and integrity in our lives. The idea of eye service, I think we we all understand. It means that you work hard when your boss is watching, but you work differently when he's not. When that's your way of working, you're in direct opposition to the Word of God. If you're working uh, working simply out of eye service as people pleasers, you're working hard when their eyes are upon you, but when they're not around, you work in an entirely different way. That's problematic. And you know what this looks like in your situation. Maybe if it's not you, it's those around you who continually frustrate you. You know, the boss walks in the door or pops into the office and browsers are closing and phones are being put down quickly. 
boss comes in and everybody sits up a little straighter, works a little bit harder, pretends like they're doing a little more than they actually are. You see, what he's telling us here is that we should have integrity in how we work. And integrity is not simply what you do when somebody else is watching. In fact, you could probably define integrity by what you do when nobody is watching. That's a clearer picture of who you are. By the way, biblically, spiritually speaking, before the Lord, this is absolutely 100% true. A lot of us are good at faking religion and having the external evidence of religion, and we love to do that in front of others to put ourselves on display but ultimately, true, biblical, spiritual integrity is who we are before the Lord. Robert Murray McShane used to say that. He said, who I am before the Lord on my knees, that's who I am truly and nothing more. And that's what matters most to God. He doesn't want us putting on a show in any area of our lives. And in particular, here, he's speaking of our work life. If you're working just for the show, if you're working just so people will think you're a hard worker and you're not actually a hard worker, you're actually in sin. See, working with integrity is not driven by pleasing people. And when we are fixed on pleasing people, it leads to a whole host of problems. We become more concerned about what we do when they're watching and we're more willing to compromise our integrity to get results. Here the call is to work with a new kind of integrity, working hard, doing our job, doing the job that we're being paid for, going above and beyond even sometimes, but doing it consistently to the best of our ability. This is what it is to work with integrity, and this is what we desperately need. Next, he tells employees to work with a new attitude. Notice how he kind of lumps the heart in here now. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service, notice this word, with a good will. There is a sense in which he's telling us to actually work joyfully, cheerfully, with goodwill, a heart that is filled with wanting to do the right thing the right way. And for some of you hearing this, you're like, yeah, but you don't know what I have to do for a living. You don't understand. My job is terrible. I hate my job. How can, how can I work from the heart with the goodwill in my job that I hate? You know, this sounds really easy, you might say, Ian, if, if you love your job, what if I hate my job? Anybody in that category this morning? No hands? Listen, I, I hope, I just want to say that I hope you get your dream job. We, we live in a time, in a place where we can have the privilege of oftentimes doing what we like and having a lot of uh, options and opportunities. I hope you get your dream job, but you need to hear this this morning, but you're not entitled to it. If you can get paid to do something you love, praise God. That is a gift of God. But if you've got to do something you don't love to pay the bills, you're not the first person in history to have to do that. And you can. Even if it's your job that you don't like, you can do it in a way that honors God and blesses those around you. Paul is not talking about what you do for a job. Remember that. He's talking about how you do the job that God has given you now. And you may be looking for other opportunities and other career advancements or career shifts, and that's great. But where you are, even if it feels menial to you, it matters deeply to God. The way you do what you do now is incredibly important for displaying God. Paul in Colossians 3, the parallel passage to this, he, he actually 
dealing with the same issue, he, he adds something. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. Whatever you do. And again, this idea of goodwill has a positive attitude and a, an affection in what you're doing, a joyful willingness. Sometimes it's easier to describe something by, by describing what it's not. So here's what it's not. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you get to go to work begrudgingly every day. It doesn't mean that you should work with a grumpy, complaining, bad attitude, constantly criticizing, constantly whining. You say, how do I do this? better. Well, I think he's trying to remind us here how to do it better, but let me just give you a few just additional thoughts that I think the scriptures affirm over and over. You need to cultivate a heart of thankfulness. You want to be able to work joyfully in whatever situation that God has placed you, you need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. You need to be working hard to be thankful all the time, recognizing everything you have is a gift from God. I think another thing you can do is just constantly remember that what you do has inherent value, it is good, and it is a good gift from God, and God himself, as we've already looked at, has given dignity to all forms of work. I think another thing that you can, help under, that you can understand is this, that work helps give meaning and purpose to our lives. It really does. In God's design, he gives us work to help find that meaning and purpose, and to live in a way that is pleasing to Him on purpose. It's an opportunity, in other words, to display God in what we do and how we do it. And that's where Paul leads us next. He gives us a new ambition. You see, the greatest motivation and the greatest way we can do this is by looking really at what Paul is highlighting over and over and over again in this passage. Our ambition is not to work for men. Our ambition is not to simply make as much money as we can. Our ambition is not our own reputation. That is not our primary aim. Our ambition is to work for God. And that's what he's, if you haven't noticed this, this is really fascinating. In every single one of the verses here before us, notice what it says. It brings in Jesus Christ in some form. Verse 5, as you would Christ. Verse 6, but as servants of Christ. Verse 7, as to the Lord and not to men. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's slavery. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Every verse points us back to this, all in encompassing reality. Whatever we do, we are called to do it for the Lord. This is our greatest ambition, and this is our greatest motivation. You can think of it like this. Whoever you work for, it doesn't really matter. Your boss is God, and he is the one who will hold you accountable for how you work. And I just want you to think about that concept for a minute. If, if you really believe that, if God were your boss, just even, even think about that in an earthly sense. If, if God was your boss, every day you went and reported to God for how you were doing, what you were doing, and what he was asking you to do, how would you work? If every day Jesus was standing beside you watching what you did, how would you work? And this is a question really that encompasses all the Christian life, isn't it? If God were present, if Jesus, you're, listen, if your Savior was present right now in this moment standing here, how would you worship him? If Jesus was present at your family's dinner table, how would you talk to one another? If Jesus was present watching every conversation and every behavior in your marriage, how would you speak and how would you live? If Jesus was present right beside you, as you faced every temptation towards sin, 
how would you respond? You see, this is the way God wants us to live because listen, Christian, Christian, Jesus is with you everywhere you go, in every context, in every circumstance, in every trial, in every temptation, he stands with you. And he fights for you. If God was our boss, it would certainly affect, wouldn't it, our work ethic, our integrity, our attitude, our ambition? I sure hope so. And if the king of the universe asked you to do anything, anything, in a moment you would leap up and do it with incredible joy and passion and excellence. The name of Jesus is being referenced here so many times and it's a reminder for us that it's about the character and mission of Jesus that we are called to. To work, in other words, in the name of the Lord Jesus is to work in a way that reflects his character and joins his mission. You want to know what Paul is ultimately saying? Work for God's glory. Work for God's glory. Show God's glory in how you work. We're called to be excellent, not only in our character, but our craft, because we are demonstrating over and over the glory of the one who crafted and created us. In everything we do, we need to remember that we are rendering service as to the Lord and not to man. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating, when God gave to Adam the instruction to work and keep the garden. There's only one other place in the Old Testament that those two words are used in the same way and used together, and that's the priestly duties in the temple. So why are you telling me that? Listen, because the Garden of Eden is a sort of temple. And, and the objective is the words are so important, but, but I want you to see what's behind the words. Do you see that the parallel with the temple? Every opportunity to work is an opportunity to worship God in how you work. Everything you do. The call is to be a good employee, and next he turns attention to a good boss. And listen to what he says Masters, you too, you do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And I just want you to see what he's saying here. He's not telling them uh, that they need to obey their servants. He's not saying you need to obey them too. It's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying that what's true of the bondservants must also be true of them. They need to operate with the same ethic. They need to have the same kind of respectful behavior towards their employees. If you're a Christian employer, you need to treat your employees with dignity and value and respect. You need to care for them in the way that you expect them to respond and care for you. You need to have the same kind of integrity in what you're doing and how you're operating, what you're asking them to do and how you're working yourself and overseeing the affairs of the business. You too need to have a good attitude, working with joy, goodwill, heartily, and you too need to have the same ambition for all that you're doing. You are seeking to be pleasing to the Lord and not to man. And you know what he's really telling us? If, if you're in a position of leadership in your workplace, this is so helpful for you to understand. He's telling us that the key to good leadership isn't control but character. And, and the world thinks that, that to be a good leader is simply to have power and control. And, and in our flesh, listen, the Word of God says so much about this and the way the world operates because our flesh leans this way. We gravitate here very quickly. When we're given positions of leadership, we can tend to become domineering, power-hungry, harsh, controlling. 
He's saying beware of the tendency to try to control instead of focusing on your need for character. Character trumps everything when it comes to spiritual leadership. And in our world, we want to fixate a lot on competency. We give a lot of credence to people who are highly competent and, and you know, they have the gifts and the skill set and the abilities and we want to praise them and put them on pedestals and praise God for competence. But did you know in spiritual leadership, when you work through the New Testament especially, the emphasis is overly on character more than competence. In all the qualifications for an elder, right, you can, you can list them out. The only competency is being able to teach. Everything else is character. Character, 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 because character is what will make you the kind of Christ-like leader that God wants you to be. He's hitting at the tendency in all of us to lean maybe more towards fear-based leadership. You know what that looks like in the world? We've seen this over and over again where you surround yourself with yes men or yes women and you keep all of the power at the top and to yourselves and you don't motivate uh, others with encouragement. You simply motivate with fear, with threats. You use your power not to suppress You're called to use your powers not to suppress, but to empower others, not to use others for your good, but to serve others for their good. Employers, let me just speak to you for a moment. If you have people who work for you, you need to consider how your leadership is affecting the kind of culture you may be creating in the workplace. And what if your employees believed that you cared as much about them as people than you do about profits? How would that begin to change the working relationships, and the working environment. Ultimately, when you think about this kind of fear-based leadership, we need to understand that it's rooted in insecurity. We try to compensate for insecurity by controlling things, by domineering. But when you're transformed by Jesus, it completely changes that. You see, when you're secure in Christ, you don't need to control, you can empower And when you're secure in Christ, you don't need to instill fear. You can trust those who work for you. And when your identity is in Christ, not in your career and not in your reputation and not in your bank account, you don't need to use people for your good and to make yourself look better. You can lead people for their good and to make God look better. And if you want some more incentive for this, let me just remind you Both employees and employers, look at verse 8, knowing this, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And not only that, he mentions at the end of verse 9, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and, and that there is no partiality with him. And do you see the idea here? That your accountability is ultimately to God. Whatever position God has given you in this life, your accountability is ultimately to God. Ultimately, You are not the boss if you're a boss. Both employees and employers have a common master who is in heaven, and he shows no partiality. This is so helpful for us to be reminded of. This is important because in our fallen condition, we often begin to think because we have a greater position in this life that maybe somehow God favors us more, or or maybe we'll get away with stuff that others won't. I mean, look look at how God has blessed me. Look at how God has cared for me. So many in leadership 
begin to think that they're somehow above the law, think that they're untouchable. And God is reminding us that we are all on the same playing field before him. You will not get a pass on accountability because of your position in this life. You have been entrusted like your employees, and you will be judged based on your works as a steward of what God has given to you and entrusted to you. And this helps us because we need this accountability to function in healthy relationships with one another. The last portrait that's given is more implicit, and that's this. We see the portrait of a good God. And again, it's not explicitly given in the text, but I want to draw it out for you, and I think it's, it's important that we see this. Jesus is mentioned, as I mentioned, over and over again in every verse of this passage, essentially, and I want you to see how he was referred to in the final verse as our master. It's common language for referring to Jesus in, in the Christian life. He is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. He is the one we bow before You see, Jesus is our master, and what that means for all of us this morning is that he is given authority over the universe. He's the one we're ultimately going to answer to. He's the one who will judge the living and the dead. And he shows us all how to use our authority for the good of others and for the glory of the Father. You see, he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the master of masters, and yet what we read in Scripture over and over and over again is that he became a servant. He became a bondservant. Remember what Mark 10, 45 says, that Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many? You see, the picture that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one with the most power and the greatest authority in the universe gave the greatest act of service to the cross. Not only as an example for us to follow but the power for us to actually live this out. The word ransom, he gave his life as a ransom for many. It's so powerful. The idea of redemption carries so much strength and power. It implies that there are people who are in bondage under a yoke of slavery and they needed to be liberated. They needed to be set free. And in the ancient world, they had to be bought. The slaves did. The, the bond servers had to be bought out of their position in, in life. They had to work it off. And someone could easily come along if they chose to and pay a ransom price to set them free from the bondage that they were living in. And just imagine in the ancient world being in bondage for years and years, trying to work off a debt. Maybe, as we see in Scripture, even the parables that Jesus told, a debt that was impossible to work off. And then somebody comes along and sets them free. Out of no obligation, freely, voluntarily, out of love, and at a great cost personally to himself, and this is the picture that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the word of God tells us that he accomplished for us. We were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage and in darkness. We were alienated from the life of God, separated from his blessing and from enjoying his presence for all eternity. And Jesus, out of great love, the master of masters became a servant of all. He gave himself, sacrificing everything, paying the full price so that we who are bondservants to sin could be liberated and set free to work for him.
Jesus, the master who became a servant for our sake. And only when you become a servant of Christ, listen, only when you become a servant of Christ can you be freed from finding your identity and your position in this life, from finding your overarching purpose in the work that you do, and to ultimately find everything you are and everything you need in Him, whether slave or free. In verse 8, He reminds us that there is good coming to those who work for the Lord. We're serving the Lord. No matter what we do and who we are, every one of us will stand before the Lord and He will repay for how we have worked and for whom we have worked. I don't know what you are working for and who you're working for today, but if it's not Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Master of masters, the Lord of lords, it will ultimately not matter in the end. But by God's grace, you can start today to work for the one who has worked to set you free from your true bondage and slavery to sin. Start working for what will last, the kind of reward that a good God will give. We began by talking about how God has dignified work, given it value. It was His idea. It was His original design. And in that original design, it was that in our work, we find great joy and purpose, not just in what we do, but for whom we do it. As we live this out in a fallen world, this good design is not eradicated, it is just more complicated. What we have here is a template to help us redeem our work. What was marred by sin is being restored in Him. So let it be our goal as followers of Jesus Christ to work for Him and the glory of His name, to display Him in how we work, to exalt Him through all of our work, for He who worked in the beginning is working even now for our good and for His glory. We have the privilege of joining Him in this mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have called us and You have worked on our behalf We thank you, God, that we are not saved by our works, but we are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are working, as Jesus said, even until now, that God, at this very moment, you're upholding the world and the universe by the word of your power. God, you are working to stir our hearts right now. Your spirit is working in mighty ways to bring conviction and encouragement to remind us of what it is to live in a righteous way and to display your character, to image you to the world around us. God, I believe you may be working right now in the hearts of some who are far from you. And God, you are working in your kindness to bring them back. And God, I pray that you would be working in a mighty way. God, even now to save some who God, have never put their faith and trust in you. God, would you illuminate the beautiful truth of the gospel right now to any heart that is darkened to this? The master and the king and the Lord of the universe became a servant and gave his life as a ransom for many to set us free from the bondage of slavery and sin, to live unto you with newfound purpose and hope and joy with healing and forgiveness and grace that is lavished upon us. And God, we pray that all of us, Lord, who know you and love you would find it our great privilege and our joy to in this life work to exalt the name of the Lord our God. 
Do this, we pray, in us. Do this, we pray, through us. Do it, Lord, because we know it is for our good, and do it, Lord, because it will bring you great glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.